I don't know how you've got on with this series on prayer over the last six, eight weeks. I don't know how it's, how it's gone with you. I have found it really uncomfortable, and it's maybe because it's my job, and I should be praying. I should be praying all the time, but I've really felt like, like it's been like an awkward look in the mirror. Do you know that way? Have you ever got in a lift? And you've got to stay in there a bit longer than you want. And you've got on you from a bad angle and you think, I'll just try it again from this angle. No, it's still not great. Or oh, my hair's terrible. I look wrecked. And there's no way of improving what you look like. I felt like, like the lights really shone in on me and my prayer life. And I'm doing some really hard self-assessment. Do you ever pray and run out of words? Is that you? Have you ever just, on a nighttime, you go before God and you're praying and just, you just run out of words. There's no more words left. And you just... And then and you've not even have that enthusiasm to find the words. The words just just run out. Have you ever prayed and fallen asleep? Have you ever done that? I'm getting, I wasn't expecting laughter at this point. I've got jokes coming. But <laughs> laugh, laughter at this point is great. But that's true, isn't it? Have you ever prayed and just fallen asleep? You just fall asleep in prayer. Have you ever come away from a prayer thinking, this was just all about me? I've not even considered anybody else. And I guess as we've gone through this series on prayer, what's happened in my private studies, I guess, is I've just been flicking over the pages at Jesus' prayer life and been reminded of my own prayer life. And it's been really uncomfortable looking at Jesus, how when in Gethsemane, when he's faced with the kind of pain and torment that we can't even think about, he prays faithfully in that circumstance, not for himself, but for God's will. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. His habit was to go away and pray. I read just the other night, I was just flicking through my Bible, and it, the, the start of the story was that he went to a mountain to pray. Jesus went to a mountain to pray. So on the odd occasion that I've been to a mountain, that's been like a week trip or a day trip. This, the, the, Jesus' prayer life changed the geography of where he was going to end up. He ended up, you know, he took time out. I, I looked at what the mountain was, and it would take you a day to climb it. Jesus prayer life, Jesus' life was soaked in prayer. And so I was embarrassed by this contrast of Jesus' prayer life and my prayer life, like an awkward look in the mirror. We're looking at the series on prayer. It's interesting, isn't it, that as we're looking at the series on prayer, prayer is all over the news at the moment. I, and Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, and the bit that we're going to look at today is just is the bit after that. So everything that I'm going to say is built on this foundation. I think Jesus, in teaching on prayer, hoped that the disciples had got hold of this and there's some further additional teachings that come along with it. So I want you to remember that anything I'm saying about prayer now is built on this foundation that Jesus has already established in the Lord's Prayer, things that we already know. I've got three points. So again, similar with me, if you remember these first three points, you get the sermon in a jiffy. It's just something for you to hook your thoughts onto. First point I'm going to make, and you'll I guess you'll get it as when the, if the text could pop up, you can see. You maybe work your way through it linearly. The first point I want to make is that we should be audacious in prayer. We should be audacious in prayer. Not because necessarily that's what God wants from us, but because God is gracious. We can be audacious in prayer. We can be almost ridiculous in prayer because we have a gracious God. I want us to be persistent in prayer. Nobody likes a nag, do they? If, you were, if you're looking at what girlfriend and boyfriend material is going to be, 
somebody that's a nag is one that you chalk off straight away, I think. If, if you spend five minutes with somebody and they're already nagging you, you think this is not husband or wife material and you rule them out. And yet that's not the way it is with God. God seems to not only tolerate a nag, he seems to encourage us to nag him, to pester him, to trust him in that way. God wants us to be persistent prayers. He wants us to be audacious in prayer, or rather we can be audacious in prayer because God is gracious. He wants us to be persistent in prayer, and he wants us to be confident in him. He wants us to trust that he knows what's best. And actually, when you say that in church, that feels like a very easy thing to say. But the reality for us, in the midst of the rubbish of our lives, to trust God when we're going through difficult circumstances, when we're going through ill health or tough relationships or just life being hard and tough, trusting God in these circumstances is difficult, but that is the instruction. Okay, let's fire into the text. It should be up on the, on the screen there. You can follow it with me. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. And I have no, the door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This story is a long way from our world, isn't it? This is, a, this is a story about bread, essentially. We don't have many stories today about bread. You've got the first guy who's traveled a long way and turned up at this guy's house, and he's uninvited. And the odd thing for us to get our heads around is the guy who is in the bad end of things is the first guy who's turned up, who's gone the long way. Now, if if Joe turned up at my house in the middle of the night, I'd be like, Joe, what are you doing? You know, it just wouldn't happen. I'd say, why didn't you text me? Why didn't you just get in, why didn't you just get in touch with me? That would have been easier. You've just turned up at my house. But yet, in Bible times, there's no phones. There's no way of communicating. If you're going to get somewhere, really, you've done a good thing. You've probably walked a few days. You've turned up at somebody's door, and it's a good thing. And the onus is on the guy who's receiving you to be courteous, to be hospitable. And that's a bit difficult for us to get our heads around. This guy's turned up at an awkward hour, and the guy who's not ready with some bread is the guy who's kind of got a bit of the shame. So he rushes out to his mate's house. There's a friendship there. You can see that in the text. He rushes around to his mate's house, and his mate's door is shut. The door is closed. We have to take a little bit of a a jump here. We're 2,000 years down the line. We're a couple of thousand miles away. We're a few hundred cultural jumps So we have to look back. The door's closed. This was an open door culture. Um, Lots of us today don't even really know who our neighbors are. The doors are always shut and often locked. But in, in this part of the world, the doors were open. Everybody knew everybody else's business. But when the door was shut, that's that's really like saying, right, don't come in. We're we're batting down the hatches. I've got a friend of mine who I thought was joking when she said, when the curtains are closed, you don't come in. And I was like, oh yeah, okay. You don't come in when the curtains are closed. This was a rule. And I made the mistake of going around and nobody answered the doors. The curtains were shut. And the door's shut here. And it means we are battened down for the night. If you've ever been camping with kids, you'll know what this is like. Once you've gone through the rigmarole of zipping everybody up, 
do you need the toilet? Do you need the toilet? Do you need the toilet? Yes, you need the toilet. Okay, we'll go to the toilet. You come back. It's just this 40-minute drama. And you ask yourself, stupidly, do I need the toilet? Yes, I think. I don't know. If you ask yourself enough, you do. You need the toilet, so you've got to go. And eventually, you zip up the tent, and you lie back, and you think, why don't I just book a hotel next time? That's what you think. But what you are zipped up, you are in for the night. And that's the picture we get here. In, pal- in whatever this, this, the scene is set here, it's called on an evening... You wrap up in one room with your kids. If you're fortunate enough to have cattle, they'll be somewhere. You don't want somebody knocking on the door in the middle of the night and disturbing your peace. And yet, that's the situation we get here. The the guy in the bed is reluctant. You got the picture? He's reluctant. The door's shut and he's asleep. Normal guy, to be expected. The guy outside is knocking on the door. Jesus draws our attention to a specific point, I think, here. He draws us in on one point. And it's not the only point he's making, but he doesn't let us away with it. Why does, the, why does the guy in bed help the guy at the door? They are friends. We've established that. But Jesus says it's because of his shameless audacity. It's because he's turned up in the middle of the night with shameless audacity. What you've got to remember here is that this isn't a story about how it's culturally appropriate to get bread when you don't have bread This is a story Jesus is telling about how to talk to God. This is a story about prayer. Sometimes we find ourselves there, don't we? In the middle of the night, when when life's thrown something at us, this guy who stood outside this door, uh, this friend, just turn up. Just a normal life event. And, And the consequences of that normal life event was that he was found out. And he was exposed. And he only had one place to go. Sometimes we find ourselves there in prayer, don't we? We have got nowhere else to go. Maybe you're thinking just now, after looking at prayer, you're thinking, yeah, maybe I should pray a bit more. But you don't know me. I've not prayed very well for 10 years. And I've called myself a Christian for 10 years. Or I've got this thing going on in my life that's so big, I haven't even talked to God about. I couldn't bring it up with God. I talked to him about other stuff. But I don't really even know where I'd start with this. I want you to remember this picture of the guy in the house and the guy at the door. We have a gracious father in heaven and we can come to him audaciously. The brilliant thing about this story, this parable, is that it's a lesser to greater parable. We're not supposed to think of God asleep. We're not supposed to think of God reluctant. We're not supposed to think of God with the doors closed. As the text builds we realize that this is the example of this is just a normal man. Even a normal man wouldn't refuse this request. How much more would our friend in heaven do for us? So he's not, we have a God who doesn't sleep. He doesn't sleep. He can't sleep. We have a God whose door is never closed. And we have a God who is desperate to help us, not reluctant to help us. I want you to keep these pictures in your mind. If... If life's thrown something at you, and if life's tough, and you're finding it hard, or if you don't pray well, keep this picture in your mind. We have a God who never sleeps, who is desperate to help. The next part of the text, we move on to the ask, seek, knock section. And what you'll think, if you've read your Bibles perhaps a few times, you'll think, I think I know this. I I think this song's about this, and I know what this is getting at. If you ask God, he gives you. That's what it's saying, right? So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, 
and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You know this, you know this part of the story, right? There's two things going on, I think, that's worth drawing your attention to in this, in this couple of verses. There is an increasing intensity to the words, ask, seek, and knock. When you've lost your football, because I lose my football because I like football. When you lose your football, you probably start off by asking, has anyone seen my football? And then the next step from that is you think, well, I'm not going to just get it by doing that. Nobody's helping me out here. I'm going to need to seek it. So you, you seek out your football. You go and look for it with a request. So you ask and you look. And then the next stage is that you, you think, oh, my football's next door, so I'll go and knock. So there's an action that comes with that. So there's a sort of bit of progress in this sentence. You ask, you seek, you knock. Remember, we're not just learning about how to get footballs. We're learning about prayer. Also, these words are continuous. These verbs are continuous present tense. So when we think about ask, seek, knock, it probably would be better translated asking, seeking, and knocking. We are to be people who are asking people. We are to be people who are seeking people. We are to be people who are knocking. This is something, this is like a building picture here all the time. As we draw up to Christmas, increasingly, we will see um, wandering shoppers. They're mostly men. I don't, you may have seen a few of them, mostly men. If you, if you go in H&M or somewhere and you get to the changing rooms, you'll see most, some women, but mostly men, hanging around outside. And if you, if you were to go up to them and ask them what they were doing, they would say something like, oh, I'm looking for my wife's present, or I'm looking for my wife. But actually... They're desperate for distraction. I know because I'm a wandering shopper. And actually what you're thinking is, if I walk past a cafe, I'm in there. I don't want to look around anymore. These people, we people, we're not looking. We are, we are wandering around. And if we happen upon the perfect gift, we really just wandered into it. And it's there in the shop. But we're not looking for it. We have a phrase in my, in my house called the ash look, which is a bit of a shame. I don't know if anybody else does this. Something's gone missing, and my wife will say to me, could you go and find that ash? And I'll open the door, I'll look inside, and I'll go, it's not in there, and then I'll try somewhere else. That's the ash, look. It doesn't go any further than that. It's something in the pantry. If you look for the mustard ash, it's in the pantry. No, nah, it's not in there, shut the door. It's an ash, look. It's not very thorough. I don't dig around. And I give up immediately. We lost our daughter for 10 minutes on the beach, and I've told some of you this story. Little Kira, we lost her for about 10 minutes my wife, I was at the sea, mucking around, and my wife was reading a book, maybe, maybe 50 yards away. And between, the journey between us, something had gone wrong, and Kira had wandered off. And actually, she had wandered off a long way. And it had been about 10 minutes, and my wife rushed down and said, have you, got, have you got, you know, the panic that you get? Maybe you've been through this if you've got children. Have you got Kira? No, I haven't got Kira. Where's, where's Kira? Kira's gone. And Kira had really gone. She had really gone miles away. So the both of us shamelessly audaciously sprinted off. And, and it's terrible because your worst fears are is, is some, you judge everybody. Somebody, is somebody taking her away? Is she in the sea? What's happened to her? And you fly around frantically looking for her. And what was interesting and what's helpful to this story is there was never a point where the intensity of my search was drooping. There was n- that never happened. It just got more and more and more intense. And I became more and more shameless. And I got to the point where I just run along, grab people. Have you seen her? Have you seen her? The intensity just went up and up. And it was only ever going to go up and up and up until I find her. I was asking and seeking 
and knocking properly. Think about how that might apply, apply, apply to our prayer life. When we think about, think about perhaps the things that we pray for, do we ask, do we seek, and do we knock? Do we really grab hold of God in that way and really shamelessly, audaciously search things like we would search for our children? Have you got somebody in your life who you're concerned about their salvation? When I, as, I, as I prepared for this, I thought about a few of my friends that aren't Christians, and I thought about the times when I'd prayed for them, and then the prayer stopped. Just stopped praying for them. Prayed for them for a bit. They disappeared out of my life a bit. Stopped praying for them. Think about how God teaches us to pray. Shamelessly, audaciously, with ever-increasing intensity, asking, seeking, and knocking. Is it God's will that my friend gets saved? Is it a good thing to pray for? It's a good thing to pray for. Can God make that happen? Did I just forget to pray? Did I just drop it and leave it, leave it there? That's what happened. It's a challenge to us all, I think, isn't it, when we think about our prayer life. It's going to be an interesting six months for this church. Um, and I guess we have the option, like, like the wandering shopper, just to wander into the next place, to not really give it much thought. We're going to be there. We're going to be somewhere. In six months, we'll be somewhere. Someday we'll sort something out. But we have a wonderful opportunity for six months to be really faithful in prayer. As a church, we can pester God and he will welcome it and he will want us to. It's good that we do this. I think it's a good thing for us to think about over the next few months to pester God with increasing intensity It's good that we find a new place to go. It's God's will that we be somewhere, that we meet together. This is good things to ask for. Let's, with increasing intensity, bring these things before our God. I guess the difficulty is, when you deal with a a verse like this, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be open. For every story like that, you'll get somebody who will say, well, I've been asking a lot this and I think this is a good thing to ask for and nothing's happening with me it's interesting isn't it there's no prayer formula the difficulty I guess here is that the parable and others like it encourage bold persistent prayer and there are accounts in the Bible where this bold persistent prayer is answered but there are accounts in the Bible as well where where this isn't answered there's no prayer formula. I guess the most obvious example, and it might be an example you already know, is the Apostle Paul. I don't know what you know about the Apostle Paul. Did great things for God, but had this thorn in the flesh. I had a friend at Bible college who was convinced it was his wife. I don't think that was the case. But he had this thorn in the flesh. He had this problem, and he prayed and prayed and prayed about it, that God would take it away. And God just said, no, you can have this problem. Not only you can have this problem, but this problem's good for you to have. This is a good thing. I'm saying no, and it doesn't mean it's not a no, I'm not with you. It's a no to your request, and I am still with you. Because God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I guess we live post-fall, 
we live with the curse of sin and all the consequences that come along with that. But sometimes God just says, no, or God says, not yet. I feel a little bit, as a 37-year-old guy who's not been through loads of stuff, inadequate to stand here and say, it's going to be okay. But sometimes this stuff is really difficult. When God says no, it's difficult, to, it's difficult to handle. I think we need to remember something. Sometimes God says no, and you're still in his thoughts. You're still in his will. And what he wants from us, what he needs from us, is to keep praying. He wants us to be people who ask, seek, and knock, even if it's no and not yet. So the last part of the story. And this is a really odd little story, I think, that we come to here. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father in heaven give, good, give the Holy Spirit to those people who ask him? It's a really odd thing to ask for for a gift. My son's not asked for an egg for Christmas. It's, it's obviously a 2,000-year-old thing, or neither has he asked for a fish. But when you stand there and think about, about the concept, it's a really horrible picture that a father would play a joke, play a practical joke on his son after they ask for an egg or a fish, bring him something that looks a bit like an egg, or a fish, a scorpion, or a snake, and, and sneak up on them and go, there you go. It's a really horrible, horrible story. Which one of us dads, when their girl really wants something for Christmas, would egg them on for months and months and months, and then on Christmas morning go, ha-ha, ta-da, it's an empty box. Who would do that? It's a horrible kind of story, isn't it? And the passage said to us, how much more then would our Father in heaven, who is not like us, who is perfect, give us the kind of gifts that we need. Sometimes our kids come to us, don't they, and they ask for chocolate. Often this happens. They will come and say, I want some chocolate. And the thought process is, I'm a bit hungry. I remember chocolate's awesome. I'm going to nag my parents for chocolate. Then I'll eat chocolate, and there are no consequences for eating chocolate. That's, that's the child's perspective. Or they'll see an advert on the TV of a chocolate bar, and they'll say, yeah, that reminds me, I like chocolate. And the, the whole thought process is chocolate, 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 to getting chocolate, to eating chocolate. There's, never, there's no consequence, there's no anything else along the way. Sometimes you can be, as a parent, you can try and sneak a bar of chocolate, and just the sound of the rustling of the bar of chocolate awakens the senses of your kids, and they'll say, can I have some chocolate? And their logical thought process is all about the chocolate. And they ask for chocolate, and as parents, we give them fruit. And the kids... <laughs> Sometimes my little girl will look up at me and go, um, how did, when did this happen? This was nowhere in my thinking. All I've thought from start was the advert about chocolate. I remember how awesome chocolate is. It was all chocolate. And I'm stood here in front of you with fruit. This doesn't make any sense. And actually what, what, what they'll say is, I don't want this. In fact, I don't want anything. This is the worst day of my life, is what they'll say to you. And yet, what I have given is the perfect gift with the benefit of, I'm a fairly average parent, I think. And I've been to the dentist quite a lot with my teeth. And I've seen enough documentaries about what sugar can do to you to know that this gift, even though it was nowhere in my kids' thinking, this gift is the right gift. 
this gift is the appropriate gift. And actually, I give my kids lots of gifts like that. Let's go for a brisk walk in the countryside. I don't want that gift. Let's, let, here's a maths textbook. Here's some more fruits and vegetables. And my kids say, I don't want any of this stuff. And yet, these are perfect gifts with my average fathering ability, with my little bit of life experience. And how much more will our Father in heaven, who knows the very hairs on our heads, who knew about us before we came into existence, who loves us in a way that we can't even begin to understand, how much more will our Father in heaven give us perfect gifts to those who ask? Maybe you sat there thinking, well, that's fine, Ash, but I just don't want any more fruit. I've had enough fruit. I want some chocolate. I want some of the things that I'm asking for. I want, I want you to give me them. Jesus would say to us at this point, I think, you need to trust me about this. I know you. I know you inside out. I know exactly where your limits are. I know what's going to happen five minutes from now. I know what's going to happen in a million years from now. I know everything about you. I know the gifts that you need. And you need to trust me. I wonder, I wonder what, at this point in the story, I wonder what the disciples' gifts I wonder what they would have wanted. Jesus is about to teach them on prayer. And at this point in the story, we're at Luke chapter 11. And if you, if you search back through the text, you realize that we're at a turning point. In, in Luke's gospel, they're always heading somewhere. Jesus is always heading somewhere. And he's just about to head off to Jerusalem. And, and in saying they're about to head off to Jerusalem, what he's saying is, Jesus is off to the cross. What would, what would the disciples what would, what would be the gifts that they would want? I think they would, we heard them arguing about position. Maybe they wanted to see a few more miracles. Maybe they wanted to see Jerusalem back from the Romans. They would have been gifts that they would have really wanted to see. And yet the gift that they're going to get, the gift that Jesus talks about here, is the gift of the Holy Spirit, a really brilliant gift. And yet, what does it mean? What is Jesus saying in giving them the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? Jesus is saying, you're not going to have me around forever. What's going to happen as, as they head towards Jerusalem is this, this ragtag bunch of brilliant but ordinary disciples are going to be left without their leader, their rabbi, their savior. They're going to be exposed and they're going to be in real difficulties and real trouble. That is the gift that they're going to get. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's perfect. It's exactly what you need, but you're not you're not going to think like that when it comes. And yet, when Jesus dies and departs, ascends into heaven, he's, he's resurrected and departs, and the disciples are left, a bunch of ordinary fishermen, with this perfect gift, but in really difficult circumstances. And out of this incredibly unlikely source, births the church. Peter stands up, an ordinary fisherman, and preaches to the same people that hung Jesus on the cross. And loads of people are saved. The church is birthed under great persecution. And grows today. Because of this perfect gift of the Holy Spirit. And yet at the moment where Jesus left these disciples. They would have all been thinking. How can this be the gift? How on earth can this be the right way for us to go? And yet it was the perfect gift. I guess to make some application. We can be going through 
difficult circumstances. We can be going through stuff that you wouldn't even tell your husband or your wife. We can be going through stuff that nobody else here in the church is going to know about. We should remember in this that God might not give us everything that we ask for, but his purposes are always good. His purposes are always good. A couple of things to think about as we close. In prayer, be shamelessly audacious in your prayers. Not because that's a good pattern for your prayer life. It's because we have a gracious Savior. So if, if you've not prayed for not prayed well for a few weeks or for a few years and you're thinking I can't just start coming to God now I'll never keep it up what's the point in me trying to alter my prayer life now be shamelessly audacious find yourself outside God's house as it were in the middle of the night and scream to him and he's a gracious father and he'll answer your prayers I want you to pray persistently particularly about us particularly about this church let's not give God a break with this It's good that he gives us somewhere to go. It's good that we meet together. It's good that we present the gospel to people outside. These are good things to ask for. Let's nag and pester with increasing intensity our God for an answer. And he will answer us. And let's trust, even in the most difficult of circumstances, that God knows what's best.